0: May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. story of these two young men who lived in eastern Kentucky down in the Hollers. And um, the story goes that these two boys, Walt and Willie, were notorious for their disgraceful living. Um, they were known as womanizers and drunkards. Um, they hustled people at the billiard hall, were involved in all kinds of mischief and bad behavior. They would race their cars through town, never slowing down as they go through the corners and around the turns. And, um, and they would never grace the doors of the church. They were, um, they were often known to be using language that was really salty, you know, would make even the, the most uh, callous person blush. And, um, and they were just your regular, you know, garden variety heathens, uh, hellions, um, no good son of a skunks, as they might say down there, uh, just really bad guys. And then one night, Willie is driving his car recklessly through town in a drunken rage, loses control and dies in a fiery crash. The next day, Walt, his brother, went to the local minister to make funeral arrangements. He was distraught, as you might imagine. So he goes to the minister and he says to the minister, um, look, preacher, you know, my brother was an honorary boy. He was up to a lot of no good and all this sort of thing. But the truth is, he really wasn't that bad. So here I'll make you a deal. If you'll say at my brother's funeral that he was a saint, my family will give your church one million dollars. And I know you're building that new educational wing and we'll see it done with the money that I'm going to give. So the minister thought for a minute and he said, fine, I'll do it. He check was written in cash. The Walt knew the minister to be a man of his word, so he had no reason to doubt it. So a few days later, um, it's a funeral. The minister's up in front of the church. He begins like he does all every other one, and he sa- started sounding good words. But then all of a sudden, it took a turn. The minister said, "You know that boy Willie? He died on account of his own foolishness, driving through town on a drunken rage. It's no wonder." If he hadn't been so foolish, he'd be alive today. Besides that, the world's better off without him. He was a drunk and a womanizer, a cheat and a liar. He was a no good son of a skunk. He was one of the worst people in the world. You just know that this was a bad guy. If there is a hell, there is no doubt that Willie is right there at this very moment roasting in it. But I will say this about him compared to his brother Walt, he was a saint. I'm glad you got that, because I worked hard for that. It was a long way around that one, right? Sinners and saints. We do not wish to be the former. We doubt that we are going to be the latter. We're not the notorious site, you know, but somewhere along that continuum. And we think about, you know, where are we? We're maybe not notorious, and yet still have a desire to be godly. How, where can we find ourselves? On a on a place between sinner and saint, some of us probably would say, if we were honest, I feel like I'm a lot closer to the former than the latter. But what is a saint anyway? I mean, what do you think of when you think of saint? And and you know the the um, the Roman definition, the Roman Catholic one, is someone who lived a life of of great piety and heroic virtue, often uh, noted by their performance of many miracles during their life. And so, a person is canonized, recognized after their death as having been a saint, and they are believed to be so close to God that they can intercede for others. And, um, and you know, a person can lift up prayers, and this, this saint can hear them and, and go to God. Saints aren't worshipped in the Roman Church as they are not in ours, but um, but they are believed to be of a special type of person, a rare person of true piety and heroic virtue. But they're rare. Um, they're often viewed as not too fun either, aren't they? I mean, they're sort of like Aunt Mabel, you know. Um, worried about that, you know. They like, love Aunt Mabel, but don't really want to be like her. What does Billy Joel say? Um, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun. You know the song, don't you? I mean, you're probably singing it the rest of it now. Stop. <laughs> Pay back attention to me. This world which, uh, you know, a, 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 um, a saint, someone that, you know, you probably ought to be like, but you don't really want to be. Or maybe you think about saints of people like St. Nicholas, who used to put coins in poor children's shoes when they would leave them out. Or maybe like um, St. Francis, who gave up all of his wealth to to found this order of poor preachers. Or maybe you think of a saint like Thomas Aquinas, who became a monk and a university professor, and you know, he's kind of cloistered himself away and taught people theology all day long. Whatever you think of, it probably comes out something like this. The idea of being a saint is probably out of reach and maybe even not necessarily practically a matter of taste. not sure what I want to be. I'm sure I don't want to be like Aunt Mabel. I don't think I can be like St. Francis. And I don't want to be like Willie either. (laughs) You know, I mean, where am I going to be in this line? The New Testament, though, doesn't use the word in that way. The New Testament doesn't use the word saint in the ways that we thought of, the ways that I've just explained. In the New Testament, the word saint often just simply refers to all the people of God. Paul calls the Corinthians saints. Have you ever read that letter? Those people were in all sorts of trouble, all sorts of moral um, confusion, and yet Paul calls them saints. And in Romans, he said that the church is, are the people who are loved by God. And listen to this one called to be saints and so he puts it out there in front of us and says yeah there might be a continuum but listen here's the direction you need to head and you need to believe that god wants you to get there that god wants you to get to godliness he wants you to get to an area where where sainthood is an idea that can be grasped but how I mean, how do we move from one place to another? How do you move from notorious saint or notorious sinner to saint? We'd be a notorious saint would be good too, right? How do you increase in godliness? And that's the thing we all struggle with, right? How do we increase? How do we how do we get from where we are to where we want to be? In the book of Acts, it was read us a little bit ago, there was a story about a man named Saul. Saul was a um, he was the most orthodox of orthodox Jews. Lived in the first century. He was he was passionate about, about Judaism. He was so passionate about it that he thought that pagans were simply to be ignored. And people who were within Judaism, who did not toe the line perfectly, were to be imprisoned or even executed for their uh, inability to keep the law. Saul knew every one of the 613 rules of Pharisaic Judaism, and he would have rather died than broke any one of them. He had a religious zeal that was unmatched. If ever someone wanted to be a saint, it was this fellow named Saul. And yet, he actually ordered the execution of Christians. Uh, Stephen is executed, and they say they threw the coats at the feet of one called Saul. He was standing there, not only watching and participating, but actually giving the orders for it to happen. And Luke says that one day, he's on his way to Damascus. He has orders to arrest Christians and throw them in prison. He undoubtedly wants them to be killed. And as he's going down the road, something happens. Suddenly, there's this blinding light from heaven so much that it knocks him off his horse onto the ground and his fellow friends or his companions who are with him, they too fall off. Nobody can see anything except for Saul. And do you know what he sees? He sees the Lord Jesus. And not only sees him, but he hears him. And he says to him, Saul, Saul calls him by name. Why are you persecuting me? Well, you heard the story. He says, well, who are you? I don't even know. I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. Why are you doing this? The part that we don't hear is Saul later on goes to the home of a Christian. He's baptized. But all the while, he's blinded. He can't see anything until the moment of his baptism. And then, and then like, scales fall off of his eyes. And he suddenly sees the world differently. He becomes a changed human being. So much so that he becomes the most prolific missionary the world has ever known. He writes 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. He's probably written others that you know that were lost in our time and for all time, but he became someone different. Listen, Paul, Saul rather thought he knew what he was doing about pursuing being a saint. Paul, as he's later known, actually becomes one. But what is it? What what happened with him? I mean, what can we glean from his experience that helps us to know something about this pursuit? The first thing is this: I want you to notice. Saul was found. He didn't find anything. He's riding down the road. He's got other plans, doesn't he? He's on his way to Damascus to arrest people. He is very religious. And yet he knows nothing about God. Very religious. And yet knows nothing about God. And all of a sudden, he goes to arrest somebody and he is arrested. Jesus finds him, not the other way around. And second, he realizes that all of his religion, up to that point, really meant nothing. No matter how religious he was, he really had not accomplished anything, anything worth value. He had not become more godly. He had not become more saintly because of all of his hard work. In fact, just the opposite. A third thing that happened to him, scales fell from his eyes. And he realized the world wasn't at all the way he had seen it. The world wasn't the kind of world that he thought it was. It wasn't a world where you had to live up to this perfect performance or else God hated you. In fact, it was quite the other way around. God loved the world. He was invested in the world. He wanted to redeem the world. He wanted to reconcile the entire world to himself. Now, I know Paul's experience is unique to him. You know, your experience is not the same as mine. Mine's not the same as Paul's. Yours isn't the same as Paul's. Yours isn't the same as the person next to you. But there are some things that I think are paradigmatic from Paul's experience. Some things that we can glean from that. And the first one is this, is that if we know Jesus Christ as Savior, if you have come to know that in your life, that Christ is your Savior, you know him in a personal way, that is an act of grace. It is not so much what you have done to deserve that. It's what God has done to find you. You didn't even know it. And you say, but, but I felt this urge in my heart. You know, I, I felt this lacking in my life. I, I, was, I was on a quest to find God. I, I knew I needed something more. The an- the, but I would say to you on a, on a retort, but where did that come from? That's what grace is. It's God's drawing us. Sometimes it feels like an emptiness. Sometimes it happens in different ways. But it is grace that draws us. John Wesley calls this, John Wesley, 18th century uh, Anglican priest, called this prevenient grace, grace that goes before us. His brother Charles Wesley wrote this hymn called, And Can It Be? The third verse goes like this, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, I woke the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Now imagine, you're in a prison, right? It's dark, you're in chains, the doors are barred and shut and locked. And someone turns on the light. And they come in and they open up the gate. And, and, and they come over to you and they turn off the, the unlock the chains off your hands and off your feet. And say, come on. And you get up and walk out and on the outside congratulate yourself for having rescued yourself from prison. No! It's all of God's grace when we come to realize that we realize that God has done something for us that we could have never done for ourselves. And so maybe your experience is like mine. You know, I grew up in a family where there was religion, but not much. I mean, just like, just barely. You know, Easter and Christmas and never in the same year. And um, and, and we, we never really talked about faith, or we never talked about um, the way that God would be at work in your life. And when I was 20 years old, had a, an experience similar to Saul's. And I, it, it changed me. It changed my life. But maybe your experience isn't like that. I mean, maybe you have experience, where, I hope that my children have, and that is that you've grown up in a home of faith where you've never known anything but believing, where you've never known anything but trusting in God, where you've always, you can't remember a time where you didn't believe. Thank God for that. Isn't that great? But that too is an act of grace, right? It's all of God, none of you. Maybe you grew up in a family where there was no faith, none at all. And so you just come to, to believe And you realize, maybe perhaps more than all, that the only way we come to trust in the Lord is by His act of grace. It's by His kindness. How do we go from being a sinner, a notorious one, to a saint? Only by this. Only by the sheer grace of God. Nothing that we can do, nothing that we can muster up, we can never earn it. And the second thing I noticed from Paul is this is that once he discovers the grace of God, everything else has changed. Everything else is different. There is no way in which he is similar to the old Saul. You remember the old Saul? He is, he is so angry. He is breathing threats and murder. He wants to kill people who don't agree with him. He's out on the war path. Go look at the Paul afterward. He goes to places like Mars Hill and he sits around and he talks to Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. He goes to the synagogue and he talks with Jews who used to think just like he does, or he did. He's involved in the lives of people and he doesn't hate them. He loves them because he realizes this. God loves them too. He isn't, he has a whole world where it's, it's, it's friends and enemies. Everyone is an object of God's love and adoration, and Paul seems to get it. He finally seems to get it. Can I give you just a little aside here? You know, this is, this is just extra. It's free. It doesn't cost anything at all. But one of the reasons I don't watch much of the news is because I see that it's always us versus them. And I don't care who the us is, you know? You flip the channel and it's a different us every time, right? But it's always us versus them. It's always good guys against bad guys. It's always, uh, you know, who are our enemies and how are we going to destroy them? And our enemies are often the people who live right next door to us in our own neighborhood. That is not the, the first and greatest commandment. Not even the second one. Right? And this is Saul. When he is transformed by grace, he becomes a different person. He sees all people as valuable. You see, I don't think people who actually become saints set out to be them at all. I think the people who become saints are those who, who are awake and realize just afresh how good God is. How he, by his goodness and his mercy and his gift, just drags us up and makes us part of his family. And the people who realize that are so excited and so thrilled that they just want it for everybody else in the world too. I think that's what a saint is. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.